0: Kids, you can make your way out into children's ministry. Well, the stampede rolls by. Um, You can grab your Bible and uh, head back over to Ephesians 4. Um, We're going to spend some time there this morning. Um, As I said, if you're using a a Pew Bible, that's page 977. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have a Bible um, at all, please take that one. Use it for the morning or take it home with you. We'd love for you to have that be our gift to you. Um, but we want you to have God's word open on your lap in front of you. Um, I have nothing for you this morning. Um, we come together to look at God's word, um, to hear from him, uh, and hopefully it is more from him and less from me. Um, so we want to yeah, have God's word open in front of us. As we think about going to church, it means different things to different people. Uh, some people are pretty serious about the church. It's a, it's a big deal to them. They're there every week, sometimes even midweek. Um, they even sign up to volunteer. Others, it's more of a comfort thing. It's just a nice environment. I go when it's convenient. The, the people seem friendly. The music is nice. Um, but uh, let's not get too carried away. Like Let's not go, let's not go crazy with this church thing. Um, and of course, there are any number of people on the spectrum in between. Now, I, I want to say this clearly from the start. Don't, don't miss this. You're welcome here. We're glad that you're here wherever you are on that spectrum. Um, you are more than welcome to come and, and join. But you need to understand how we think about the church, what we want for the church, what we think God wants for the church, and, and what our hopes are for everyone who comes through those doors. You see, Jesus, uh, when he died and was raised again to life, uh, appeared to his Disciples and he gave them this, this one final command. You can find the the last verses in the book of Matthew. We call it the Great Commission. And the heart of that command is this: go and make disciples. And there's some implications to even just that. Those words matter. We're not called to go and make converts. We're not called to fill up the pews. We're not called to have a well-attended, polished Sunday morning service. called to make disciples. That word disciple uh, is an active term. It speaks about much more than just identifying with a certain set of beliefs or uh, identifying with a, a certain group of people, but rather an ongoing lifestyle, a transformation, a growth. As we take these weeks to talk about the church and Why do we do what we do and who are we as a church? We need to talk about discipleship, this this process of life transformation. We talk about church growth a lot these days, and typically by that we mean more people, bigger churches. Um, But there is another kind of church growth that is commanded here that is at least as important, if not more important, and, and that is growth in depth growth and the maturity of the church. So that's what I'd like us to to take a closer look at uh, this morning. And to do that, I want to look at Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be just down from where we were earlier this morning, looking at verses 11 to 16. Um, Follow along as I read. Here's what Paul says uh, about life in the church. And he, that's Jesus, gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true. Thank you that it cuts to the heart. Thank you that it is sufficient for us, that it is profitable for teaching and training and rebuking, that we might be equipped for every good work. God, would you use your word this morning? Lord, I have been freshly reminded that you don't need me, that my human weakness is frail. So, God, we come before you dependent, humbled, eager to hear from you. God, would you speak to us this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at these verses, first thing we see, verse 11, uh, is the grounds of discipleship. The foundation upon which this is built. Um, Now just for context, if you to back up to verse 8, Paul is quoting from from Psalm 68, and and he paints this picture of of Christ as as a military general returning from battle. And he's coming in victory. He's leading a, a procession of captives behind him. He's giving gifts to his subjects. It's this great victory celebration. The battle is won. And the battle he's referring to is the cross. Verse 9, Paul says he, he descended into the lower earthly regions. That's a reference to Jesus descending not only to the earth, but to the grave, his burial. Uh, but it was in his death that Jesus won that victory. He died to conquer death, taking the penalty of death that, that we deserved upon himself. And when he rose again on the third day, he rose with, with new life for his church. Rescued from the, the penalty of death and sin, given eternal life. And that, that rescue, that new life in him, though it is absolutely a, a free gift given by grace, it, it still does make demands of us. Faith in Jesus isn't just intellectual. It's not just saying with your mouth that you believe. It's discipleship. Um, It shouldn't be too shocking. True faith actually believes, begins and continues this, this life of actually believing what Jesus said. And if you actually believe him, then you'll actually do the things that he says to do. That's where these gifts in verse 11 become so important and so precious for us Jesus in victory over death is in this triumphal procession and here are the gifts that he gives to his church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers. Without getting too bogged down. Let's just kind of look at each of those for a moment. Um, There's a progression in these gifts. They they build on one another. First is apostles. Now, uh, on one hand, the Greek word apostle simply means one who is sent. It was just an ambassador, an emissary, a a delegate of any kind. But clearly, Paul is talking about something specific here. Um, He's speaking of the apostles in a technical sense. He's speaking about those who were handpicked as official representatives of Jesus, who were there for his earthly teaching, who were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. Um, We're talking about the 12 disciples. And then Paul. As Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus after his resurrection, he was an eyewitness then of the resurrection. But Paul says that he became the last of the apostles as one who was untimely born, one who's kind of late to the party, the apostle to the Gentiles. But these apostles have this significant role in the church as this gift to the church. It was the apostles who gave us the New Testament. The New Testament is the the record of the apostolic teaching, their account, their authoritative record of, of who Jesus is and what he taught. What an amazing gift, what an essential gift for the church. If any discipleship is going to happen, it has to start on the foundation of the apostles, God's word. So Jesus gave the apostles, and then secondly, it says he gave prophets. Now, typically when we hear prophets, we think Old Testament. But that doesn't work here. That doesn't make sense here. These are are gifts to the church by Christ given after the apostles. I think these are New Testament prophets. Earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about these uh, prophets. Um, He says in Ephesians 3 verse 5, um, he speaks of the gospel saying... um, The gospel was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the the gospel, it was veiled in the Old Testament. It wasn't clear, but now it's being made clear. It's being proclaimed and clearly taught by the apostles and the prophets. You see, the apostles and prophets are kind of tied together there in a sense. We read in Acts of men like Agabus, who was a prophet. Um, Acts 15.32 says that Judas and Silas were prophets. That's not Judas that betrayed Jesus. It was a common name. Um, But they were said to be prophets. Now there's debate in the church today. Do do prophets continue to serve the church? Is that a way that God continues to work? Um, I think it's helpful if we understand what a prophet was. Prophecy in the Old Testament Um, spoke of an authoritative word from God. Prophets were relatively rare through the thousands of years covered by the Old Testament, but when they spoke, they spoke with infallible authority from God. Often they would begin with the words, thus saith the Lord, and then even speak in first person as if God himself was speaking to his people. This certainly is what the New Testament church would have understood a prophet to be. And I think it's what the New Testament prophets were. After the coming of Jesus, the the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, um, the New Testament is in the process of being written and God gave to the church prophets, men and women through whom God spoke directly, gave revelation to unpack the Old Testament, to to give clear uh, witness to the gospel. That's why Ephesians two verse twenty, Paul says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. So the New Testament prophets, alongside the apostles, were laying the the foundation of the church. Understanding that personally, I don't think there are prophets in the church today. I think that was for that foundation time that God has spoken. We now have his word completed. Um, God continues to speak to us through his word, by his spirit. But the New Testament prophets accomplished the task that they were there for, the laying of the, the foundation of the gospel. The next two gifts um, are building on that foundation. Um, number three is evangelists. Again, In one sense, we're all called to be evangelists. We are all sent out to to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, and yet there are some uh, who are uniquely gifted as evangelists, given to the church by Christ as gifted at proclaiming that good news. And then finally, there are the shepherd teachers. Now, I lump those together, and, and it's not as clear in the English. I think it is if you're really looking for it, but... The Greek has an obvious marker there before each different word. Um, It's the Greek word day, which is kind of hard to translate in English. It's kind of a slippery word. Um, Maybe the word even can be used. And so if we were to put that in there and, and translate that word, verse 11 would read, and he gave even apostles, even prophets, even evangelists, and then even shepherds and teachers. And so he's kind of breaking those out that way and I think linking those together. And that brings us to where we find ourselves this morning. Shepherds, teachers in the church, feeding, caring for the flock. And there may be a number of different people in any given congregation who are gifted in in shepherding and and teaching. But but most specifically and most officially, the the shepherd teachers of the church, that's, that's the elders. Shepherding and teaching falls under the the responsibility of the elders. The word pastor we get just from the Greek word, actually Latin through the Greek, uh, shepherd is what it means. Um, Elders are to be overseers, caring for the flock of God. And we don't culturally appreciate Authority. We're skeptical, we're self-sufficient, we're, we're lone wolf mentality, um, but Christ gave these as gifts to the church. The trustworthy, authoritative word of God through the apostles and prophets to us. The evangelists who, who proclaim this good news, the shepherd teachers in every church, the faithful elders who love you. You know that, right? These men love you. They're passionate about caring for your soul. They have made significant sacrifices, giving themselves and praying for and serving you, sincerely desiring your spiritual health, your spiritual growth. That's a gift from Christ to you, to our church. So see that as a gift. Appreciate that. That's that's the gift that is the, the foundation of discipleship given to the church, by Christ. Now, I'm going to ask your patience for a minute because we're going to just put pause on verse 12 and skip right to 13, and we'll come back to 12 in a minute. Um, verse 13, we, we, we go from the, uh, the grounds of discipleship into the goal of discipleship. Let me read verse 13 for us. Paul writes, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure, the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal. That's what we're after. First, I want you to notice one one simple fact there. Christianity is not static. It's not a a static state. It's not like a Costco membership where you just get your membership and you are a member, and it doesn't go anywhere or change, you're just a member. Following Christ is dynamic. It's ongoing. It's it's a process. And so it's true. In the moment you trust in Christ, you are saved. You become his child. You you, you do become something. But but the life moving forward then as as this saved person uh, isn't just about being. It's about becoming until we all attain, until we get there. You see this this process that we're in. There's movement, walking down a path, growing in maturity, like a child growing from infant to toddler to teenager, eventually into responsible adult. Paul says we are to be growing, look at this, towards the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now Paul says, The faith here. Um, He's not talking about the act of believing. He's not talking about my faith that I have. Um, He's using this the same way he does back in in chapter 4, verse 5, saying that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The faith, the one faith that we have, you could say, is the, the Christian faith. It's the body of teaching. It's this set of beliefs that we hold to Jude 3 says we're to contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. And so this is parallel statement then in, in verse 13. Um, he says the faith and then he follows that with the knowledge of the Son of God. What do you mean by the faith? I mean knowing who Jesus is. We're to grow up in that. Fully, rightly understanding who he is what he did, what the, what the Bible teaches. Paul's talking about maturity and in understanding truth and doctrine. That's important. That matters. Notice at the same time, being grounded in faith and, and being strong and built up in the knowledge of the Son of God, it, it's not just about knowledge. It's not just about kind of being a, a spiritual egghead. Truly understanding the faith, truly knowing the Son of God produces a changed life. Not just an individually changed life, but a a communally changed life. Paul wants us to grow in the unity, the fellowship, the, the oneness, the love that comes out of the faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to to truly grasp the gospel, to truly understand who Jesus is at a heart level, the the wonder of what it means that you you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that you are a sinner, that nothing good dwells in your flesh, that you deserve death and hell, that God, by his grace and his grace alone gave his son to die in our place and the the depths of that redemption and the meaning of adoption and the wonder of the inheritance in store for us as you come to to know that and not just the basics of the faith but the but the bible has some deep and complex things the more we grow in a a heart level understanding of the doctrines of the faith the outcome ought to be unity What a blessed reality that is. Closeness together. Despite our indwelling sin, despite our weakness and our shortcomings, despite our differing personalities, growth in the faith, maturity in the faith produces what Paul just finished talking about, what we were praying about this morning. Verses 2 and 3, all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It's not sinless perfection. That would be nice. That would be a heck of a lot easier. But it's not. Growth in the faith, absolutely. Sanctification means we will will sin less often and less grievously when we do. But that's not Paul's focus here. His focus is love for one another. that binds us together. Understanding the gospel. Truly grasping who Christ is and what he has done empowers the kind of love that's honest about who we are as sinful, broken people. It's not naive about who others are as sinful, broken people. Recognizing that we must always be both receiving grace and giving grace, knowing who Christ is and how he loved us, how well we were yet sinners, he died for us, produces that kind of love. It breaks the power of sin between us. a bond that unites us more powerfully than the sin that, that threatens to divide us. It was said in the, of the, the believers in Acts chapter 4 verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own. They had everything in common. They were, they were united together. Philippians 2, 1 and 2 Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's the maturity that Paul is looking for. That's what he wants to see in the Ephesian church. That's what the Lord wants to see in our church life together. It's messy. It's often painful. It will require ongoing repentance and forgiveness. It means bearing with one another's shortcomings. It means being honest about our own sin and weakness and transparent and vulnerable to others. But that is what this this gospel truth produced unity ought to produce. That That is what the church needs to grow in. That's the depth that we ought to have. A growth in the knowledge of the gospel that produces this bond of love. And that growth is to grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's the the end game. That's That's the goal of our discipleship. That's the bar that we're trying to reach. It's none other than Jesus. What's the standard? Jesus. So let's just get this out there. We're not there yet. We haven't made it. That is a journey that we are going to be on until the day we die or Jesus takes us home. But that's our goal. That's what we want to set our eyes on. To be, to be rooted and built up with this, so, so saturated in the, in the gospel truth. So overwhelmed by the, the wonder of the glory of God revealed in Christ. That it produces in us this, this deep, meaningful unshakable, loving unity together. That's what a mature church looks like. That's the goal of our discipleship. Do you value that? Do you see that? Is that what you have your eyes set on? When you think about what our church ought to be, what do we need more of? Is that what you see? It's easy for us to get wrapped up in in tradition, to be distracted by programs, to be preoccupied with duty and, and doing the right things. We easily get hung up on that person's sin and that person's sin and that person's sin. What we ought to be striving after is, is a gospel-fueled unity in love. Everything else will either flow out of that or it's window dressing. Is that what we're striving for together? And again, maybe that's not you. Okay, let's just be honest. When you're like, ha I'm just curious about the music, it's a nice place to come, this is big, that's overwhelming, that's okay. Or maybe you've been burnt, you've been hurt by the church. Like I said, it's messy in here. we got a bunch of sinners getting together. And you think that kind of unity, that kind of transparency, that's dangerous. Okay, I get that. Let me say it again, you're welcome here. You're welcome to come and sit on the fringe. You're welcome to observe. You're welcome to come every now and then. But but you need to know, this is what we're after. This is our goal. And because we love you, eventually, we're going to want to pull you into that. We are. But I hope you hear this and your heart sings, yes, that's what we need. That's what I want. I want more unity together. I want to be more honest about who I am and the work that Christ is doing in me and the sins that I'm wrestling with. I want people to know that. I want to to be able to to see them for who they really are and have that kind of unity together. And we see the gifts, the the grounds of discipleship and then the goal of discipleship, the the ideal that that we're striving for together. Now let's look at verse 14, um, the gravity of discipleship. The gravity. Um, Verse 14, Paul writes, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So we're, we're supposed to mature. We're supposed to be built up in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, which produces this glorious unity in Christ. Because if we don't, we're going to be stuck. We're going to be, end up as, as spiritual children. right? Like Don't be the, the spiritual equivalent to that guy uh, living in his mom's basement playing video games at 35. We don't want that. That's not what we're after. You first come to Christ, you first believe, you're a child in the faith. You can't help it. That's where we all start. You can't avoid that any more than an adult can avoid being a child. And if you stay a child, you will be susceptible to you be like a boat without an anchor, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried around by every wind of doctrine. Interesting that Paul uses that metaphor here. Remember, he's writing this from Rome, and his voyage to Rome was not uneventful. They left late in the season, and were rushing, racing against the coming storms. Um, they made it kind of halfway across the Mediterranean to the island of Crete, um, to, the, to the east side of the island there, and, and they hoped that they could kind of sail along the south side of the island, kind of stay tight into the shore uh, to get to a safe harbor where they could winter on the island. But they misjudged it, and the winds began to blow, and their boat got blown away from the island and tossed out to sea. 14 days. Think about that. 14 days. This ship has no idea where they're at. They have no control. Their sails have been destroyed. They're throwing things overboard, trying to keep from going under, and they are tossed to and fro by the waves. Paul knows what this feels like. Eventually, their boat is blown into the island of Malta and destroyed on the rocks, completely obliterated. By God's grace, every person was saved, but the ship is toast. This is vivid imagery for Paul, for anyone who had had sailed during that time. Tossed back and forth by the waves, helpless against the force of the wind. Uh, But in this case, the wind and the waves are false doctrines, wrong teaching. Driven by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, we we, got to look through those words. It's easy for us as we talk about cunningness and craftiness and schemes, and we think, oh yeah, that's really bad. But the result of craftiness and scheming is that it looks good, right? It's clever. It's really insightful. It touched me. It was culturally relevant. It was just—it was so impressive the way that that was shared. The only problem is it's not true. It's not the faith once for all handed down to the saints. It's creative and deceptive teachings of men. The examples of what that could be in our day are, are limitless. The prosperity gospel is an easy one to pick out and look at. That shows up in more subtle ways as well. But this, this promise that if you just had more faith, oh, God would give you wealth and, and health. That's God's plan for you. You just have to believe it. Progressive Christianity is another one, says, oh, you just, we just need to let go of some of these old stodgy teachings about sin and repentance and you know, hell and, and death. Like salvation in Christ alone is so narrow. Everyone will find their way to God eventually. We just need to, you know, kind of let people go their own way. Others are just charlatans, fantastic communicators, handsome and winsome people in the way that they speak. And and, and a lot of it is is really nice that they say, very moving. Some of it, if you look at it on its own, it's actually even pretty good. But in the end, it's not about Christ. It's all about them. Their fame, their following. Again, the options for false teachings are endless, but they all do the same thing. They they pull us away from the truth. And away from the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And, And of course, in that, they pull us away from unity. As we're all moving together toward the truth, toward Christ, we're all moving toward one another. As we're blown to and fro by the waves, we're scattered spread out. But even more soberly, the implication, I think, of Paul's metaphor is that these winds and and waves, once they've scattered us, they threaten to shipwreck us. It's a serious warning. We need to realize that we live in a world filled with strong winds of false teachings. They are around us. You have to be on guard. You can't just go into the Christian bookstore and pull any book off the shelf and expect to get good biblical teaching or to flip on YouTube or the radio and just soak it in without thinking critically. Romans 16, 17, Paul warns, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrines that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetite. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. The children. They're blown about by these waves. They hear it and it's, it's great and they're, they're taken with it and they, they lose hold of the truth and they go running in after these things. Watch out. We need to be cautious. We need to contend for the faith. Hold fast to the truth. Have nothing to do with, with worldly thinking and false teaching. This is the maturity that we're talking about, the unity in the faith and the knowledge of Christ, it, it matters. The gravity of this warning is huge. This is life and death more than that. This is heaven and hell and eternity in the balance. And that brings us then to the game plan. How do we get this maturity? If it's so important and we need to, to grow from children to, to men in the faith, how do we, how do, we do that and that gets us back then to verse 12, and then we'll pick up verses 15 and 16. We started in 11. We saw the, the grounds of discipleship, these gifts from Christ, the, the foundation of, of discipleship, the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers. And it's really easy for us. It is so natural for us in our culture, this professional mindset, to think oh, good, we've got them, we have a pastor. We have elders. They're the ones who do the discipleship. I'm just going to show up and let him do his job. Let them do their thing. Look at verse 12. We'll start in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. It's true. The elders... The shepherd teachers in the church, that is our responsibility to lead toward maturity, to see that discipleship is happening. But that doesn't mean that it's our job to do all of the discipleship. The job of the shepherd teacher in the church is not to do the ministry. Look at verse 12. It's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now you're thinking, okay, who are those, who are those saints? Do we have any of those? Yeah, we do. Um, it's you. You're the saints. This is Paul's favorite term for just everyday believers. Those who trust in Christ are saints. What is this work of the ministry then? What's this new job description that I've just been given? Well, it's building up the body of Christ. It's growing the church toward that unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That job belongs to all of us. I'm not the minister of this church right? People call me that. Are you the minister there? Nope. Oh, we got a bunch of ministers, actually. We're a pretty staff-heavy church. Um, we're all ministers. The minister of the church is that person you see every morning when you look in the mirror. You are a minister at Redemption Church. That's where Paul picks up then in verse 15, giving us a little more of this ministry job description. Rather, So rather than deceitful schemes and human cunning getting tossed to and fro, rather speaking the truth in love we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers are writing and and confirming and sharing and teaching God's word, are equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body. And and here's how you, you do that, speaking the truth in love. That's the the heart of it right there. The church grows as we, the saints, speak the truth in love to one another. That means not lying to one another. Some of that, I think, means being honest about who we are. Not hiding or being deceptive. We don't come Sunday morning with that perfect Christianese mask on. Everything's great. I'm fine. Just loving Jesus and doing wonderful while everything's falling apart. Now we're honest. Speak the truth. But I think it primarily throws us back to verse 13 the faith, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. What truth should we speak if we're speaking truth to one another? God's truth. This is exactly what Jesus prayed for, in his high priestly prayer. John 17 17, he prays to the Father, sanctify them, make them holy, mature them in your truth, your word is truth. There it is. Remember back a, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So shepherds and teachers, that's our greatest tool if we're looking to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's, it's the word of God. That's why we preach scripture. That's why we preach through verses of the Bible. But for all of us, as we want to grow in maturity, our greatest tool is is the Word of God. It's in seeing and knowing the wonder of the gospel that we grow in this unity and, and maturity together. Now, if you're going to be able to speak the truth, you'll have to know the truth. There's some, there's some work to be done, maybe. Maybe you need to spend a little more time in God's Word yourself. Reading God's Word, soaking in it, coming, hearing God's Word preached. Don't just, don't just sit through and take a nap. Take notes. Think about it. Wrestle with it. Go back to the Scriptures and look at it. That's part of being equipped for the ministry. But we're not only to speak the truth. Specifically, we're to speak the truth in love. The truth should bring about unity, and sadly, that's not always the case. Truth should not be used as a hammer. We should speak it with with genuine concern and care, not for our own good or or self-defense or self-justification, but out of love, out of genuine care for the person that we're speaking to. Towards unity. Of all the the personality tests that are so predominant today, maybe this is the simplest one, the easiest one. Are you more of a truth person or a love person? Because we typically tend to fall one side or the other. Some of us love people. We find it easy um, to love people. In fact, we find it so easy to be loving, so natural to be loving that we never actually get around to the truth at all. We don't want to hurt or offend. We don't want to upset the balance. We don't want to upset feelings and and comfort levels. And so it's all love and no truth. Others are truth people. We value the truth. The truth matters. We love the truth. We're so eager to tell the truth. We'll tell you the truth whether you want to hear the truth or not. Sadly, we're so focused on the truth that we could use the truth to destroy a relationship. Neither of those are okay. All of us are going to tend to lean one way or another. All of us need to be on guard on this. Again, our our unity has to be built on ongoing repentance and forgiveness as we bumble through this together. Personally, I'm more of a truth guy. Some of that's how God made me. I, I would say even gifted me. But as in all things, even our gifts become corrupted by sin and and, and it's not that I don't love people. It's not that I don't care about each of you. It's that, that, that if I'm not guarding myself and being careful, I'm just, I'm just looking at the truth. And, and I want to go there together. And so my words can come across cold, even harsh. That's not my intent. That's not my heart by any means, but that can be the effect. And, and it's that way with all of us to some degree, trying to have love and truth, to be like Jesus who's full of both grace and truth. They're not, they're not mutually exclusive. They can go together. And that realization of our imperfection in this, our weakness and shortcoming, that ought to keep us right where we belong, clinging to Christ, focused on the gospel, our need for grace. We need to realize I'm not a hero in the church I'm not the one who has come to to rescue the church. I'm here to make it all okay. No, I'm a mess. I'm a problem. I'm just trying to be obedient. I need grace from God to continue to, to love others, to speak the truth to others. None of us will do it perfectly. But look at this wonderful, mysterious relationship. Verse 16, Paul says, From whom? From Jesus, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we're going to grow up into Christ, who is the head, and, and from where does that growth come? By whose energy, whose effort, whose power causes the growth? Well, verse 16 seems to be schizophrenic. From Christ, the whole body grows, and it grows when it's joined together with every joint with which it's equipped. When each part is working properly, each part is doing its thing, the body grows itself up. And where does the growth come from? It comes from Christ, and how does it happen? The body does it. Do you see the mystery here? Which is it? Does the body build itself up? Is this our job, or is it Christ's job? We're each gifted, uniquely by Christ, made part of his body, called to, commanded to, serve one another, to to speak the truth in love, to build one another up. That's our job. Christ won't do that job. He's called us to do it. And yet at the same time, in the end, it's all Christ. It grows up from him. Even Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. So neither him who plants nor him who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. As it is with most things, there's kind of two ditches that we can tend to veer off into. Uh, Some seem to think that they are the hero of the story, right? I'm here. Follow me. Uh, I am God's gift to the church. Everyone look at me. We're going to be okay. Others are more prone to think that they have no role in the church. Who am I? Like, what? I'm nobody. What can I do? I just got here. I don't even, I'm just learning the Bible. Um, I have nothing to offer. Both are wrong. Both are wrong. Christ is the hero. He's the head of the church. He's the one from whom the church grows. But in his mercy and by his grace, he chooses to use us. He's gifted and called you to serve, to strengthen, to encourage, to build up the body toward maturity. And maybe, maybe he's gifted you in significant ways and you have been equipped and you are ready to go. Or maybe you need to first get your own feet rooted in the understanding of the gospel so that you can better love and serve others. But, but every one of us has been called to serve, functioning a part of the, the body of Christ, not one of us will accomplish a single good thing in the church, however, apart from the gracious, glorious work of Christ. It's him who does it. So let me encourage you. You're a minister in the church. Step into that. Take that seriously. Let's pursue that unity of the faith together. When you come Sunday morning, come to be built up, come to be fed, and come to serve. Come to love others. Come to speak truth to others. Small groups are, are right at the core of this. We could, we could basically call those uh, love and truth groups. Like that's, that's what it's about. Loving one another, building these commitments where we're honest together and transparent together. We're living real, genuine, authentic lives together, sharing with one another and speaking truth into one another's lives. If you're not connected to a small group, that's a, that's a real great place to start. Small groups are for everyone. But all of it, as always, needs to begin and end with Christ. It's the unity that comes from the faith, from the knowledge of the Son of God. True discipleship, true depth of growth toward maturity in our own hearts and in the church begins with the work of the gospel in us and ends with the work of the gospel through us. It's Christ who builds his church. We, we just have this privilege of being along for the ride. Would you pray with me? Father, for this reason, we bow our knees before you, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit, In our inner being. So that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That we being rooted and grounded in love. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to you who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. To you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.